Welcome to Love Savers Radio, ministering the blessings of covenant. This is Walter and Sandy Fox from Love Savers Ministry, called by God to minister the blessings of the marriage covenant by enriching, encouraging, strengthening, and praying for the healing of marriages, especially marriages in crisis. Today's guest author is Dr. Gary Chapman. He wrote the book, Things I Wish I'd Known Before We Got Married. Dr. Chapman is the best-selling author of The Five Love Languages and has more than 40 years of counseling couples. He believes that divorce is a result of the lack of preparation for marriage and the failure to learn to work together as intimate teammates. He says that most people spend far more time in preparation for their vocation than they do in preparation for marriage. Sandy talks with Dr. Chapman today about his book, Things I Wish I'd Known Before We Got Married, things that you will be prepared for, not surprised by, before you get married. Let's listen. Hi, Dr. Chapman. Hi, Sandy. I want to thank you, too, for joining us for dinner in Rhode Island before your wonderful church presentation. My family really enjoyed your company so much. Thank you again. Well, that's great. That's and, great. I enjoyed being with you oh, all. Thank you. Uh, we're going to discuss things I wish I'd known before we got married. All right. um, Most people, you say, spend more time, you know, in preparation for a vocation than they do in preparation for marriage, and that could be the reason why the divorce rate is so great, um, because they fail to learn the skills of working together as intimate teammates. And your book helps us with that. Most advice authors work from their strengths, it's safe to say, yet as your title implies, things I wish I'd known before we got married, you write from some very first-hand weaknesses. Any regrets (laughs) on that self-exposure? No. You know, my wife and I agreed years ago that if we're going to help people, we've got to be honest about our own struggles in the early years of our marriage. And we had lots of struggles because we didn't have any help beforehand. Uh, We saw a pastor for one hour, and that's all. We didn't read any books. We didn't go to any other premarital counseling. And consequently, you know, we didn't know how to work together as a team. So... um, when I, I've wanted to write a book for a long time now uh, for couples that are thinking about marriage, and I, I wrestled with, you know, what do I pro- how do I approach this? Because I know that in today's world, a couple is not going to read a long, heavy academic book on marriage. Right. And so as in praying about it, I just sense that God said, you know, just share out of your own heart. Look back on your own life. And, and and let's think about things that you know now, that had you known then, 
would have made your marriage much easier. So that's what I did. That's right. I mean, it's so wonderful to be able to share from personal experience. There's just so much wisdom that comes from that. Your book is about marriage, but it's not unusual now for couples to skip marriage altogether. Why do you mm. think that is? Why, And why do you advocate marriage? Well, I think our culture has become very popular in our culture to just live together and not get married. And I think there are reasons for that. I think many of the younger generation have seen their parents divorce. They know the pain and the struggle of that. They don't want to go through that. And so the idea is we'll get, we'll live together for a while. We'll see if we're compatible. And uh, if not, then we won't get married. If we do, then maybe if we are, then maybe we'll get married down, down the road. Uh, and I, you know, it's, it sounds logical, but the reality is it doesn't work. You can't simulate marriage. And the statistics are very clear. Couples who live together before they get married, most of them, the majority, never get married. Yeah. They'll break up eventually, but they don't get married. And those who do get married, the divorce rate is higher than those who did not live together before they got married. Uh, and I think, as I said, the reason is you cannot simulate marriage. And when you have a, a living together arrangement before marriage, it's basically you're not wanting to make a commitment. You want to keep the door open. Uh, marriage is a commitment. In fact, it's a covenant that we make with each other that we're going to seek the well-being of each other, and we're going to do it for a lifetime. It's a huge commitment, no question about that. And it's not easy uh, because all of us are selfish, <laughs> we, right. and we have to learn how to how to be loving and caring for the other person. But it is well worth the effort, and I think any couple who's had a good marriage will tell you. Wow, they wouldn't have it any other way because there's something about knowing that this person cares for me, they're going to be here for me no matter what happens. That brings great security in the relationship. And security is so important, I yeah. feel. You know, security with the Lord, but it's security with each other also. Marriage is about love, so why isn't love enough? Well, I think love is enough if you understand that there's two stages of love, <laughs> and I deal with this in the book. Right. The in-love stage, uh, you're pushed along by these uh, strong, euphoric emotions. Uh, in your mind, this is the most wonderful person in the world. You love being together. You miss each other deeply when you're away from each other. Uh, you, you don't see the flaws. You don't see the humanity of the other person. Now, your mother can, you know, but you can't. Right. <laughs> She'll tell love you some things, blind. but, you know, yeah, but we don't listen to, to our mothers when we're in love. Uh, and if you think that is going to carry you through and give you a long-term successful marriage, uh, you're mistaken for one simple reason. The average lifespan of that euphoric state that we call falling in love is two years. Then we come down off the high. Right. No one told me that, Sandy. You know, I had this impression that if you've got the real thing, it's going to be there forever. Uh huh. My wife and I had been dating two years before we got married. So, you know, pretty soon after the honeymoon, I came down off the high. 
And I lost those feelings, and I thought, oh, man, what's going on? I don't feel what I used to feel. Yeah. And then the things my mother told me about her were true. Right. <laughs> or I must have married the wrong person. <laughs> that's right. I had those thoughts. Yeah. Uh, and you have to understand that, that that's only the first phase of love. The second phase is much more intentional. It takes much more effort. It's consciously choosing to look out for the interest of the other person and finding out what is meaningful to them. And that's where the five love languages comes in. Uh, my original book, way back, uh, that's helped so many couples make oh, the transition yes. from the in-love experience to this more intentional stage of finding out what makes your spouse feel loved so you can speak love in that language and the emotional need for love is met. And if you, if, if, if what I call the love tank is full, if you really right. feel loved by your spouse, you can work through the other normal conflicts that couples have in a relationship and you can navigate those waters because you feel secure in each other's love. Especially so, if you find out what their primary love language is. Then you're really and, the target, yes. right? And give heavy doses of it. Right. <laughs> yeah. And then sprinkle in the other four and get extra credit, okay? Right, right, exactly. <laughs> or when I just finished that book on Alzheimer's, when you experience that kind of thing, all five are a terrific way of going to make the yeah, work easier. Yeah. Absolutely. All yeah. five of the languages are fine. None of us are going to back away from any of them. Right, right. But if, but if you don't get heavy doses of the primary love language, you can still feel unloved, even though your spouse may be speaking some of the others. So it's really important, as you said, to make sure you understand the primary love language of your spouse. Right. Do we have research on what percentage of marriages actually fail, do you think, merely for lack of knowledge and preparation? Well, I think I think many of the marriages that do fail, I don't know and I don't know the statistics on this, but I think it's because if I had to give one word, I would say it's selfishness. Uh -huh. All of us are self-centered, okay? We're egocentric. And there's a positive part to that. That means that I get food, I get rest, I get exercise, I'm taking care of myself. There's a good part to that. But when that self-centeredness becomes selfishness, and I view all of life in terms of what am I getting out of this, then I come to my marriage, and that's what I'm looking for. I want you to meet my needs. I want you to do what I think you ought to do. Two selfish people are never going to have a healthy marriage. Right. It takes two loving people, and love is the opposite of selfishness. Love says, how can I help you? How can I make your life easier? How can I be a better spouse to you? See, love has that attitude. Yes. And when two people have that attitude, then you both are going to become winners because you're both willing to reach out and do things for the other person. And you're not demanding anything of your spouse. You're just loving them, and they choose to love you. And when you do, you, you both have what you dreamed of having. That is a loving, supportive, caring relationship. Right. And um, 
I recently came across something. I I remember the initials because people love to give initials these days. ADL, affection, devotion, and loyalty equals love, right? Yeah, 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 I like that definition. You can choose yeah. that, right? That's Why right. Yeah, we choose that. Yeah, to choose that. you, Yeah, you talk a lot about choice, which is good. Um, in learning to understand, uh, there is a choice and an intentionality that is so important in love. Why do you think people are slow to prepare for marriage? And what do you consider the minimum reasonable amount for anyone to prepare? I think people are slow because they assume that they already know what's going to make marriage work. And that they, besides that, they're in love. And they have a wonderful relationship, and they don't sense the need for help. Now, I found this. Couples whose parents divorced are far more likely to seek help before marriage because they don't want to repeat that. They want help, and they're looking for help. Uh, So I think, but I think that's the reason. They don't assume that they need any help, that that this love is going to carry them through. I think those who do get help, and and in terms of how much, uh, there's no arbitrary answer to that. You know, in this book, for example, I I deal with 12 things that I wish I'd known before we got married that had I known would have made my marriage much easier. So I'm taking the couples through 12 different areas that uh, things that they can learn. And while they're dating, they can learn these things, and, uh, and they're once they learn these, they're far more likely to have a successful marriage. Uh, many uh, churches, for example, have premarital programs that they take couples through. It can be anywhere from four sessions to eight or ten or twelve sessions. And typically they're they're using some curriculum, some book, uh, and sometimes some personality tests to help them understand personality better. Uh, but But every couple... In our culture especially, every couple needs some kind of preparation for marriage. Otherwise, I can predict you're going to flounder when you get in that married relationship if you haven't had some preparation in dealing with the kind of things that we're talking about in this book. Right. You clearly communicate that counseling isn't just for marriages in trouble. And that thinking through marriage issues isn't just for people already in relationships. And you you talk about that, right? What is the best way to get the most out of reading this book? Because you have little talking issue sessions to get them talking about things that's good. What's the best way? And you say that it's not just a book that is to be read, but a book that's to be experienced. And I guess you can experience it on a personal level with each other when you're doing those exercises at the end of each chapter. Do you want to just say a little bit about that, how to get the most out of reading the book? Yes, and especially if you're a couple and and you're thinking about marriage. Maybe you're not engaged yet, but you're beginning to think that this relationship's going to marriage. Then the ideal would be that each of you read the chapter You can read it individually, answer the questions at the end of the chapter individually, then get together and share your answers with each other. Talk with each other about each of the answers to those questions. And what you'll do 
you'll discover the things in which both of you agree. You'll discover some things where you disagree. And you can learn how to discuss those and decide, okay, when we get married, how are we going to handle that? So you're looking at all these basic areas uh, that are very, very practical areas. Uh, for example, the simple thing of, of, of how are we going to uh, uh, how are we going to apologize to each other? What do you consider to be a sincere apology? People have different ideas on that. Right. And so in that chapter, I'm trying to help them understand that he may have one idea, you know, I'm sorry. Right. He may have another idea. And, and so they miss each other even in trying to apologize. Right. And, and, and you have to learn to apologize. Because oh, yes. none of us are perfect, you know. If we were perfect, we wouldn't have to apologize. Right. But none of us are going to be perfect. So apologizing is an absolute necessity. It's not a, not a sign of weakness, but a sign of strength. But learning how to do it can be extremely helpful. So, yeah, if a couple will work through it together, uh, it'll be most productive. Now, you know, when I speak on college campuses, I say to the students, uh, you don't have to wait till you're engaged. In fact, far better to be working on getting ready for marriage before you get engaged. Right. I, I, say, I say, you may not even be dating yet, but if you ever plan to date and even think you might get married, read this book now. And then if you start dating, read it again. And if you get serious, read it again. Right, right. <laughs> and by the time you really get there, yes. yeah, chances are you'll have these things down and you'll have a good marriage. Right. Yes, I can imagine you would. When you talk about money management, you wave a big red flag, the credit issue. What does yeah. credit say about a person or a potential mate? Yeah. Well, it depends on where the credit was accumulated. Uh -huh. If it is credit from going to college and they borrowed money to go to college, that's one issue. That's not necessarily irresponsible. But if the credit is charged on the credit card and they've got $15,000 charged on the credit card for incidental things along the way, that is a huge red flag because it says that person, while they're single, is living beyond their means. They're spending more money than they're making, and that doesn't lead to a good marriage. Uh, and that's why I'm suggesting that you be open and you be honest and you share with each other what credit do you have. You see, if you don't share how much you owe, whether it's college debt or other otherwise, and then a year down the road or six months after marriage, they find out that you owe $100,000 in college debt, and they're going to say, what? And they're going to feel like you deceived them. Yes. But if you share it beforehand and they know you have $100,000 in, in college debt, then they're willing to accept that. They're willing to work with you on that. Or if they're not, then fine. You shouldn't get married. At least you know. Uh, but if you're not honest, it, it's going to cause real problems on the other side of marriage. I would imagine so. You advise people to know and evaluate a potential mate's spirituality, yet belief in God is so personal, why should that matter, some might think. And you also talk yep. about the fact that just going to church does not necessarily make a person highly spiritual. Yeah. 
Would you talk about you know, that I, aspect that you bring forth in the book? Yes, you know, uh, sometimes young people will come to me in, in my own church and say, you know, I'm getting married, we're getting married, and I say, okay, tell me about it, you know, who are, who's the person and all, right. and then I'll, somewhere along the line I'll say, are they a Christian? And they will say, uh, yes, they, they go to St. Mark's. Uh-huh. I said, no, 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 that wasn't what I asked. Uh-huh. <laughs> I asked, are they following Jesus? Right. That's a totally different thing. Yes. There's a lot of people who go to St. Mark's or some other church right. because they were just brought up in the church. Right. But they're not followers of Jesus. And if you are a follower of Jesus and they are not, then the scriptures say, can two walk together if they're not agreed? And the answer is not very far and not very well. Because the spiritual dimension of life affects everything else, you see, for the Christian, everything is run through the filter of what does God want? Yes. What does God say about this? You know, right. and, and, and a person that's not a follower of Jesus, they don't have that filter. The basic filter of the secular world is what is good for me. Uh-huh. And, and so they don't have the same moral standards that a Christian has, for example. And so exploring the foundations of spirituality before you get married is going to let you know where the other person is, and maybe you're too far apart to even contemplate marriage. Now, that doesn't mean that you both have to be at the same place in your spiritual journey. One of you may have been a Christian for five years, and one may have been a Christian for 15 years, and you will be at different places on the journey. But learning how to share spiritual things with each other gives spiritual intimacy. And that may mean sharing with each other something you read out of the Bible that you found helpful, something you heard in a sermon at church that you found helpful, or talking with them about applying a certain biblical principle to a decision you're trying to make. So finding out where we are spiritually and then sharing life with each other, it's a huge part of life and marriage, and it needs to be explored fully before you get married. Right. That's a major. Why do you tell your readers to be on guard for certain personality types? Should we all be looking to match personality A with personality A and personality B with personality B? You know, uh, all of us are different, uh, but we do have patterns. There are patterns. That, you uh -huh. know, we talk about people being introverts and extroverts. That means uh, the extrovert. It gets energized when they're around people. The introvert gets drained when they're around people. They get energized when they're by themselves and they can have time to reflect. That's just one personality trait. But there's a whole lot of other personality traits. And I'm not suggesting that we should find somebody who is just like us. Uh, no, no, you, you're not going to find that person. Right. But I am suggesting that you need to understand each other's personality. So that so that you're going into marriage with an understanding, for example, that one of you is a night person and one of you is a morning person. I didn't know that before we got married. I never even thought about personality, you know. Right. And I had visions in my mind that when we get married every morning, my wife and I'll have breakfast together. We'll read the Bible. We'll pray together. Yeah. After we got married, I found out my wife didn't do mornings. <laughs> 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 oh, and we had to do a major adjustment there because I can't make her be like me. I right. can't make her be a morning person. 
And but if I had known that beforehand, and we had discussed that beforehand, if she, if she had said to me, you know, honey, I don't wake up till ten, okay? Yeah. I get up, but I don't wake up, okay? Yeah. <laughs> so understanding those personality differences before you get married is what's important, and then thinking. What are the implications of this? How is this likely to affect our lifestyle? Right. And, uh, and and am I going to find this to be really, really irritating, or am I willing to accept this? Because we don't change our basic personality. Now we can we can work on our weaknesses to be sure, right? And we can we can affirm our strengths, but. Uh, a night person is always going to be a night person. A morning person is going to always be a morning person. An introvert's going to always be an introvert. An extrovert's going to always be an extrovert, and so forth. Uh-huh. So we have to allow people to be who they are, but we want to know who they are yes. before we get married. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's a good one. So after all these years, all the counseling sessions, and all the life experience, is it true, like mother, like daughter, and like father, like son? (laughs) You know, I believe that that's not a myth. I believe there's truth in that. If his father is an alcoholic, there's a good chance he'll be an alcoholic. Now, when I say that... People will say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait I don't have to be like my father. And I say, that's right. That's you do right. not have to be like because your father. Because you said you are not destined to be. Right. That's absolutely right. But I said right. now, right. if you don't want to be an alcoholic, then now is the time for you to be studying how to manage stress without turning to alcohol and drugs. Because that's what often leads an alcoholic to, to be an alcoholic. Right. They don't know how to handle life stresses. And you need to be studying about that. You need to study alcoholism. Uh, So what I'm saying is we are greatly influenced by our parents' model. But we don't have to repeat that model. But we need to take steps now so that we don't fall into that pattern. Because if you you don't do anything, you just go through life, chances are you're going to be more like your father than you can imagine. In fact, I had a man say to me just this week, he said, Dr. Chapman, I never, ever wanted to be like my father. And he told me about his father. Uh-huh. He said, but I just I just realized I am far more like my father than I ever wanted to be. You know, it's just, it's just it kind of comes natural for us. We have to be uh, assertive and, and do some things so that we don't fall into the pattern of mimicking the negative aspects of our parents. Right. Now, the positive aspects are fine. You know, it's great. If uh, his father's optimistic, he'll probably be optimistic, and that's good. So uh, we look at the positive and the negative aspects of being influenced by our parents. All right. Would you, talking about parents, would you talk to us about when you get married, you're not just marrying that one person, but marrying into a whole family. Would you say something about that? Yeah, I wish I'd known that. (laughs) You know, most of us, we're getting married. We have this vision. We're going to ride off into the West and get us a little place. It's just going to be the two of us, and we're going to spend our lives together. (laughs) We fail to reckon it, that we're marrying into a family. She has a mother and a father, perhaps a sister and a brother, perhaps stepbrothers and stepsisters, and everybody has an Uncle Claude who, who's out of sorts with the whole world, and he's going to be there every Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> so you need to get to know each other's family right. and what you're marrying into 
because it not it's not going to be just the two of you. Their family is going to be there until they die, and you're going to have some kind of relationship with them. Right. It can be good, it can be bad, it can be indifferent, it can be distant, but you're going to have to relate in some way to her family and his family. So get to know each other's family. Talk about uh, the, the positives and the negatives of family members and how you, how you best relate to them before you get married. Yes. Well, thank you so much for your book and for this interview, Things I Wish I'd Known Before We Got Married. And I will just for now say goodbye and God bless. Well, thank you, Sandy. It was good to be with you. Going to the chapel and we're gonna get married. Going to the chapel and we're gonna get married. We really love you. We pray for marriages in crisis. If you want prayer for your marriage, send your prayer request to lovesavers1 at aol.com. That's lovesavers1 at aol.com. And remember, love never fails.